the Singapore Exchange. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Uh, first of all, in Australia, uh, the SX200 is off about half a percent. Nikkei 225 in Japan sliding about 1.2%. The Cosby in South Korea up 0.66%. Uh, and it looks like the Hang Seng is going to buck the trend, open about 30 points higher uh, later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Brian Wong. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, few showers, isolated squally thunderstorms in the morning, sunny intervals during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 31 degrees, a few showers tomorrow. And then sunny intervals during the day. It's going to become fine early next week. Uh, there is a thunderstorm warning just in force right now, and it's 27 degrees, 91% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. Former ex-co-convener Bernard Chan says the upcoming finance summit by the Monetary Authority is long overdue, but Hong Kong is still far from normality as it emerges from the pandemic. More than 30 leaders of global financial institutions are expected to attend November's summit, intended to show the SAR is back and open for business. Mr Chan said for a full return to normality, the three days of medical surveillance and PCR tests for arrivals needed to be scrapped. I think it's been almost a year after most of our other competitors already have opened up. So I think the coming summit is clearly a signal to the world that Hong Kong is prepared to open up with a sort of a roadmap. Because for quite a long time, people have been, a lot of people in the businesses have been asking for that roadmap that we couldn't exactly give. So I think this summit, together with the relaxations and the restrictions and so on, is a good signal. President Biden has warned Russia that the United States will never recognize its claims to Ukrainian territory as Moscow prepares to announce the annexation of four occupied regions. Mr Biden called the referendum staged by Russia in occupied areas an absolute sham. A huge rescue effort is taking place in the U.S. state of Florida in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Rescue teams are assessing shattered communities by land, boat and by air. Fears are growing that there may have been many deaths. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis told a news conference that search and rescue operations were well underway. In all told search and rescue operations, it started in the wee hours of the morning. As soon as the winds died down enough to where it was safe, uh, you had Coast Guard assets, you had urban search and rescue teams. We've had the National Guard out assisting people. Uh, there have been more than 700 confirmed rescues, and there's likely uh, many more than that uh, that will be confirmed as more data comes in. And Facebook parent Meta has outlined sweeping plans to reduce headcount for the first time. Bloomberg reports that CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced the plans during a weekly Q&A session with employees. He reportedly said the company would cut budgets across most teams, even those that were growing. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong. And I'm Brian Wong, your guest presenter for today. And we're talking about what's to become of Hong Kong's COVID isolation facilities. It's understood that the government will assess all available COVID isolation and treatment facilities and explore the possibility of converting them into transitional housing. According to local media reports, facilities with private washrooms will be first in line, making the Kai Tak Community Isolation Facility a likely choice. The idea was welcomed by housing concern groups, but others are worried about its possible impact on tourism and the development of the Kai Tak area into a business and sports hub. After 9.15, we'll look at how a million-year-old skull found on the mainland provides insight in human evolution. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Jeff Bent, Managing Director of Worldwide Cruise Terminals, and Dr. Ma Hock Chung, the CEO of Park Oil Hospital Board Office. And in our Admiralty studio, we have Francis Lam, Chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors Housing Policy Panel. Good morning to you all and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so let's start with Mr. Lam. Um, is, is converting the Kai Tak Community Isolation Facility into transitional housing a, a good idea? Mm, I think this is quite uh, straightforward ideas because the um, quarantine camp is built by MIC and they, each MIC got um, uh, independent toilet, shower, window, bed and chairs. So already this is a livable place or, and, and perhaps there's uh, some sorts of little uh, alterations or additions will do and make it a comfortable place for a family to, to live in. So uh, because there's no cooking facilities only. So I think this is a really ready place. And also, also talking about the, the numbers of units can be offered, uh, about uh, 2,700. This is a huge number. And so um, I think this is not a bad idea uh, from a housing point of view. Right. And Dr. Ma, you're responsible for Port Oil Hospital's transitional housing project. Do you think the Kai Tech facility meets all the criteria for transitional housing? Well, uh, we have been uh, well re- responsible for running two uh, transition housing uh, projects. One of them has started uh, letting in residents. Uh, from the experience we gained uh, in the uh, Kong Hawai village, that is the first uh, item, uh, first project we are running now. Uh, other than the MIC units and also the internal uh, uh, facilities, I think we also have to consider first the location uh, of the project, whether it is actually convenient for the residents or the future residents uh, to go to work or to school. And secondly, uh, there should also be some uh, facilities uh, nearby uh, that meet their amenity needs, uh, like uh, where you have no shops, no restaurants around, uh, no grocery, uh, uh, etc., then it may not be very convenient uh, for the residents. And thirdly, I think uh, we have to also think about the schooling of uh, the children if they move in. Uh, well, because all these uh, 
transition housings, they are not mandatory relocation exercises. Uh, people would be voluntarily uh, moving into these units. So you have to have some attractions for them. At the present moment, uh, say in uh, our transition housing projects like Gong Hawaii Village, the rental is very attractive. But still the people would consider uh, well, whether the uh, transport and also the other uh, factors are that attractive to them. So uh, from just what uh, has been uh, described by uh, the, the other speaker, I think uh, the units are okay, yeah, but uh, we need to consider other things as well. So, but uh, there are, of course would be other considerations by, by the government as well. So I think it is a, uh, an, an, an uh, item worthwhile exploring, yes. So just to follow up on that, in terms of the livability of these flats, what would be the anticipated average uh, area to each household? And do you see that as an important criteria or consideration? Uh, I, I have no detailed uh, information regarding the uh, completely isolation facilities uh, in Kaita. Uh, in our Gonghaway village, um, the uh, space for one to two uh, people uh, is around uh, 140 something square feet. Uh, the uh, unit size for the three and four people uh, would be about uh, 250 square feet. And then we have uh, a very specially designed uh, unit for uh, people with disability. They can also be converted into a five and six people unit. That would be uh, uh, up to about 400 something feet, square feet. Yes. So this is, the, I think, the minimum. Uh, uh, area that should be provided uh, in the in the form of a transitional housing. Right, Mr. Lam, do you have more details about uh, the actual space uh, provided by the uh, uh, community isolation facility in Kaitak? For the Kaitak case, I what I understand, um, the unit size will be three meters wide, six meters long, so uh, make it uh, eighteen square meters. Um, uh, four area, so that means uh, 194 square feet. So that will be quite a livable size for two to three persons, provided that if you know the the subdivided units they are living in um, Sunshine or any old districts, they're talking about 70 or just up to 100 square feet. So for them, that would be a good news. And also for those um, quality camp, they have uh, some space for um, support um, facilities, um, maybe the storage for for their um, resources. So these um, facilities can be converted into community center, um, giving day nursery, um, um, shops, um, social center, uh, youth center, so that that could make the community far more be satisfactory for the residents. So I, I think this is a quite uh, ready place for for those um, people, and also uh, the but only the traffic. Um, I mean the transportation facilities is quite weak in the area. So, but that could be improved in a short time if the bus companies and the minibus companies can help. So I don't think this that will be a big problem for the Kaitak area. I guess we, we definitely don't want uh, the Kaitaka isolation facility to go to waste in future when the pandemic eases further. But then again, it doesn't really fit the original plan for development in the area, right, Mr. Bent? Yeah, I think in 
in the short term, uh, my, my perspective as a, as a taxpayer is that too much money was spent to build six hectares of, of this housing um, in four months, you know, without going to public tender. Um, it must have been billions of dollars. Really, somebody should disclose the cost. But uh, as a taxpayer, I, I think they're almost too beautiful not to use uh, for, the, for the short term. Um, there's a tenancy on the land. They're, they're allowed to use it to 2025, and I think that um, it should finish then. Um, and I'm, I'm sure at the time, um, you know, come 2025, some people will want to, um, you know, continue it. But we need to remember the original planning intent. Um, in Shenzhen, for example, they built a K-11, or they're, they're building a K-11 next to the cruise terminal. And, uh, you know, in, in Hong Kong, we are, are building a, a quarantine, we built a quarantine center at a time when the rest of the world uh, has, has basically uh, already uh, ended all COVID-related um, restrictions. So, um, so medium term, we, we have to remember the original planning intent, and that included at the time an uh, above-ground railway, uh, a monorail. Um, it should include um, a tourism node, which was at the site uh, along with the park where, where, the, um, where the quarantine center is now. Um, it also included a lot of roadworks that were supposed to have been done in, in 2016 and still have not been done. So I think for, um, to, to use these as temporary housing through 2025 um, is, is reasonable given how much we already spent, but we also have to keep in mind that, um, as mentioned, um, there isn't a supermarket. Uh, there need to be laundromats or, or coin laundry type facilities. There needs to be waste collection. There should be some kind of a playground. And transport is limited to one road in and out. And um, also, there needs to be a public transport interchange because the Kaitak Cruise Terminal is a, is a terminal. Um, it's not suited for more bus and minibus services that are there already. Um, it's a big building. There are places for um, coaches to wait for people. There are not, there's not adequate space for people to wait for buses. So there needs to be some kind of external PTI, as was originally planned, uh, frankly, for the district where, where, the, where the tourism node or community center is now. There needs to be an external PTI. Um, ferry transport should be considered, as we've, as we've said before. Um, if there are landing steps next to the Autalgok MTR, People can use those. If there's a landing steps at the end of the runway, the ferry to North Point can, can stop there quite conveniently. Um, these are, are small changes that could be made uh, inexpensively that would make it much more convenient for the people. All right. I have a message here on our Facebook page from Richard, and he, and he sort of shares your view, Mr. Bent. He says, um, what I would like to see is an inquiry into how much was spent on these facilities and which companies benefited the most from the emergency powers rule that eliminated any proper tendering procedures. And uh, that message is from Richard. And now, Mr. Bent, you're saying that uh, you hope these, uh, um, if, if uh, they become transitional housing, you hope they'll just stay until maybe 2025. So, 
what will happen? I mean, what impact will it have if it stays longer than uh, 2025? Well, I think, you know, at, at that point, it would become semi-permanent, you know, like some of our, our covered markets that have been temporary since the 1940s, <laughs> selling, selling vegetables and, and so on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of competing uses for, for waterfront land. Um, and, and maybe transitional housing is not the best. We have to keep in mind that the population of Hong Kong is shrinking. So yes, transitional housing is, is needed um, for the short term, but this should not be the long term plan for, for these people. The proper housing should be con built in the northern metropolis and, and that would be a better place long term you know, in, in proper houses with kitchens and, and laundry and so on and so forth, the, the facilities, the community facilities they need, you know, nurseries, um, playgrounds, school, every, everything else. Uh, it, it really shouldn't be a place for people to live long term. That's very fair. Although on note of Northern Metropolis and also Tomorrowland, I believe that both of these projects or these housing projects, rather, the, the anticipated earliest state by which we can move folks into them would be roughly in the, the mid-2030s or the early 2030s. So you've got basically a, a, a gap of around six to seven years in between. And whilst I'm by no means advocating that Kaitak should be used for such uh, purposes, I guess a broader question really um, for, for you and uh, Jeff is, how exactly can a Hong government balance between the incredibly important deep developmental objectives of getting tourism, getting sightseeing and building a livable community at large and ameliorating the housing crisis on its hands right now? That's a challenge. Well, when I'm elected chief executive, <clears throat> no, <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, I, I think the, the main thing is to um, stick to the planning intent that um, for, for Kai Tak, remember, it's, it's already mostly planned and, and built out and um, to remember the original vision and the original vision was for um, tourism and commercial and for waterfront enjoyment for the population in what is already a very uh, congested crowded part of town and um, not to you know after you've already gone done 80 percent of of the planning to to sort of turn it all around. Um, yeah, I, again, in, in this case, because, you know, the money's already been spent and there's something there, it's a good use short term. But um, proper housing needs to be built for, um, for these people in a, in a sustainable way. Um, and I, I think the northern metropolis is a, is a good place for that. Right. Dr. Ma, um, what do you think of uh, Mr. Bent's view? He, he was talking about transitional housing, yeah. how it's uh, not really the best option. It should not be a long-term sort of plan. What's your view on, on transitional housing? Well, actually, by definition, transitional housing is just a uh, bridging over arrangement for those uh, waiting uh, for the public housing, the proper public housing uh, estates uh, allocation. Uh, so uh, the original idea is that if people have been waiting longer than three years, then they are eligible uh, for applying for transition housing units. Uh, but they're not going to stay there for long. Uh, once they get the uh, proper uh, public housing allocation, then they should move out. Yeah. So that's the original idea. That's why most of these uh, lands uh, being used as transition housing uh, estates, they have a relatively short 
uh, period, like uh, probably I think from uh, three to uh, five or six years operational uh, uh, period. And uh, we in, indeed, we are also uh, uh, contemplating a problem is that if by the time when uh, this project uh, come to an end, and people, there are still people not being allocated uh, public housing, or some of them may not be uh, eligible for public housing. Then what are we going to do with them? How are we going to uh, settle for uh, make a settlement for them? And uh, that happened already in the Lamchen Street uh, uh, situation because uh, the uh, the project is very short lived. And then they are now worrying how to relocate uh, the original uh, residents that already moved in. Yeah, so so that's another uh, uh, concern. But uh, uh, as Jeff rightly pointed out, it should be uh, just a transitional arrangement, not a long-term development. Otherwise, it will be at odd to the uh, surrounding uh, original design and structure and buildings uh, of Kaita. I, I, I'm sure that I'm sure that the government didn't expect to have a, a long-standing kind of a, a transitional housing that's there for long. Yes. Right. And Mr. Lam, what's your view? I mean, over here, we've been talking about how um, even if uh, the Kaitak facility is uh, converted into transitional housing, it shouldn't uh, go beyond 2025. I mean, if it doesn't go beyond 2025, is it worth uh, converting it into transitional housing? Well, um, it's something like uh, some people are swimming and get drunk. And if you go to rescue him or her and just go to the nearby platform first, because the, it's far away from the coast. So transitional housing is something like this. So talking about over 200,000 people are still living in really poor conditions, um, subdivided units. So, And also we have um, another, maybe they are overlapping, is uh, hundreds and fifty thousand applicants for the public housing in the pipeline. So the critical moments is we have to deal with these people uh, kindly uh, for the time being. So maybe we cannot um, stop the transitional housing in 2025, maybe 26 or 27. But anyway, um, we need to do it now and um, provided the governments or the housing departments. I would say the housing department should do better, much better in their jobs to provide public housing faster and much more in the near future and not talking about six years to complete a, a, a public estate. Given this for a private developer can build it in four years. So I, I would say we still need the transitional housing for the time being. I think you're absolutely right, Francis. Although, just to, to ask you a question um, based on Jeff's comments just then, I think you know there's a housing crisis that requires resolution, that's for sure. But you've got uh, Brownfield, you've got other available vacant slots in uh, the northwest and also northeast New Territories that's independent of the northern metropolis. And you've also got uh, vacant or vacated industrial buildings that could be renovated for that purpose. The operative question is why Kaitak and why now, I suppose? The Kaitak is um, really friendly and they, is, they are built and no use for the moment. I, I visited the place uh, two days ago and all are empty. So why that's, we... That's not true. There, there are patients in there. Yeah. Really? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But not much, I, I believe. So um, why don't we make use of the existing facilities to help the people for the time being? So that, that is my point. Mm. 
Right. And if we did uh, convert it into transitional housing, I mean, how long would it take? I mean, earlier we talked about uh, how you need uh, uh, day nurseries or youth centers, you mentioned, and maybe even uh, like what Dr. Ma was talking about, uh, better transportation in the area. These sort of all take time and, and they, the actual units, I mean, they must need some sort of modification, right? Yes, but uh, it won't take a long time. Talking about uh, uh, a few months or even shorter. So if the um, residents can move in first and you have some sort of a common canteen for the time being so they can resolve the cooking problem, but they uh, but the cooking facilities can be added later. So um, I don't think this is a big problem. And, and what actual changes uh, will need to be made to the uh, units if, if, we, uh, if it did uh, uh, convert into transitional housing? Mm, only the cooking facilities. Others will, will be easy and, and can be added on time, uh, from time to time. But the transportation must be done in day one when the people move in. Right. And uh, Dr. Ma, what's your, what suggestions do you have? I mean, uh, what sort of changes uh, do you think is needed if we want to trans, uh, convert it okay. into transitional housing? Well, first of all, I will agree with uh, Francis that uh, it is actually a gift that all these units are being ready and they've been built so we can save uh, the building time. Okay. Uh, well, as far as uh, uh, transitional housing is concerned, uh, as Francis mentioned, it is only the cooking facilities that uh, uh, were still outstanding. So no. I think it, it, you, you need to do some, of, some, some form of conversion. But in most transition housing units, uh, they only provide electric-based uh, uh, cooking facilities. So I think that's not a big uh, problem. Uh, other than that, I think as uh, Francis mentioned, we need to well, uh, find people to operate those uh, public services, uh, like uh, you just mentioned, uh, nurseries, uh, laundry, uh, canteen, uh, some community centers, etc. That may take some time. So my guess would be probably about six months you know, to, to well, find people to operate in those areas. Now, of course, it can be expedited if government decides to do so. Yeah, but uh, you, it would take some months. Yes. Right, Mr. Bent, did you have uh, something to add? Oh, he. I was going to say there's there's a lot more work than than just putting in a kitchen <laughs> for those. But he 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 elaborate. Yes, waste collection, laundromats, nurseries, so on. And so there's there's a lot of community facilities that that those people would need. And and, and earlier you're talking about uh, um, how there are still many people living or, or staying at the facility. Do, do you have an idea? I mean, how many? I mean, you you go there all the time. I mean, I, next. I, I'm there every day, but I I don't I don't know the number of patients. But I, I know there are patients there, and there are marked off dirty areas where where those people are living. So. Right. And right now, of course, uh, there are no cruise ships coming here. So um, Correct. Yep. So when they do return, do you, do you see a problem if, um, if uh, it is converted into transitional housing? Um, no, I, I don't see a big problem. Um, Hong Kong is a, is a home port. It's where people bring their, their luggage and go and check in and get on the ship. They're not sort of wandering around and exploring the district. And, and likewise, after they go out for a week and finish their journey and come back and, and get their luggage again, 
they just want to go directly home or airport or, or hotel. So I, I think it's not not a, a big issue, actually. And of course, uh, when this idea was uh, first uh, floated, um, some developers and tourism sector uh, representatives, they, they said they believe the uh, temporary housing should not remain too long, like, like you're saying, or it will affect tourism. Um, do you think it will have a major impact on tourism? Um, I, th- I think it's, it's not the proper use of that land. Um, it's, it's not how the district was designed. For the same reason that we probably wouldn't want to put um, temporary housing next to M plus um, or, or on the central promenade. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just not, not what it was designed for. And uh, the land uh, where the isolation facility is right now, what is, um, what is it supposed to be? It was supposed to be a, a tourism node. So really, we just hope that the government will, will deliver on, on what they had, had planned for the district all along, which was um, a tourism node, uh, parks, water sports facilities, um, hotels, uh, monorail, um, all, all, of these, all of these things that, that would form a sort of synergistic cluster together. Um, if it's if it's just kind of piecemeal, then then it doesn't it doesn't work for for either side for for either people living there or for the cruise terminal or or the other residents in the district. So now that it's being repurposed for housing, um, where are these facilities and the original sort of infrastructure of a tourism node going to go? And uh, are you worried about sort of the relocation of these facilities if they're going to be there in the first place? Because uh, obviously the space is now not available for uh, the tourism node until at least 2025 from the looks of it. Yeah, um, it's a it's a concern. Um, but, but, but again, like I said, the money has already been spent. So I, I think it would be a shame not to use them. At the same time, um, they are container homes, so they could be moved. You know, containers are, are designed to be to be movable. So um, we just hope that a, uh, a proper place is found for the containers to be moved to. All right, um, Mr. Bent, I'm going to have to yeah. stop you for a moment here because uh, we have to take a short break for the news. But of course, we can continue afterwards. Uh, and uh, after 9.15, uh, we'll be looking at how a million-year-old skull found on the mainland provides insight in human evolution. And uh, remember, if you have any comments or questions for our guests this morning, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call at 233-88266. Now a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms in the morning. Sunny intervals later, right now it's 27 degrees, relative humidity 90%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Brian Wong and me, Janice Wong. Still with us in our Kowloon Tong studio is Jeff Bent, Managing Director of Worldwide Cruise Terminals, and Dr. Ma Hock Chung, the CEO of Park Oi Hospital Board Office. And in our Admiralty studio is Francis Lam, Chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors Housing Policy Panel. Now, before we return to our discussion, remember you can give us a call on 233 if you have any questions for our guests this morning. You can also leave a message 
message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, or email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Now, in the first part of the program, we uh, mainly focus on the Kaitak Isolation Facility. But, uh, Mr. Lam, there are other isolation facilities, for example, in uh, Qingyi, Shantin, and Penny's Bay. Are, are there other facilities um, that are suitable for transitional housing? Well, um, for Penny's Bay, their design, I mean the MIC design, is same as the Kaita, but it only have two stories high. and But the location is quite far away and <laughs> hopefully not suitable for any people living there to 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 go to work or for the children to, to have any schooling around. So, um, but for it, uh, Qingyi ones, I, I believe that the facilities is not so good enough for uh, uh, for any people to live long there. It's just for uh, so temporary quarantine facilities and, and, and not, not that suitable, I, I believe. And probably if you Go turn the place as um, a transitional housing. You need to um, take away the existing um, stuff and, and put it in the, the more ideal uh, MICs there. So that will involve uh, at least one year's time to, for preparations. All right, Dr. Ma, have you have you spotted any uh, good location? Uh, well, I think the big the big difficulty is that uh, well, transition housing units you have to provide on-street uh, toilet and shower. So if you're just uh, looking at those uh, isolation facilities, or having except this high tech thing, or having shared uh, uh, toilet and shower facilities, so it's not uh, a ideal place uh, for people living as a residence. Yes. Right. And uh, um, Brian, do you have something to add? Yeah, I think interestingly, you know, there's also the question of transportation and the, Jeff mentioned the problem of road congestion being an issue in Kaitak. I think this applies also to other isolation facilities, which is either could there be a dearth of roads or uh, alternatively an excessively large population that's already there, which would only compound the existing traffic problems in those districts. So this is a planning issue. This is a planning question that we have to think carefully about. Right, Mr. Bent? Yes. Do, do, do you have a response to uh, what Brian was just saying? Um, definitely transport is, uh, is an ongoing issue. And for the Kaitak district in general, um, you know, we have to anticipate that uh, people will be moving into the residential units on the runway, that the, the number of, of residential areas was increased and that the density of those areas was increased. And um, before the pandemic, um, you know, throughput at the cruise terminal was ahead of government projections. So at the same time that potential traffic has increased, um, the monorail was taken away. That was off the road transport. So uh, potentially more users and less transport. So we need to find alternatives, um, preferably alternatives that reduce traffic on the single access road. All right, I have an email here. It's uh, from Alonso, one of our listeners, but uh, it's not really 
related to what we're talking about, uh, but uh, it's for you, Mr. Bent. Oh. He says, uh, a few months ago, I was informed by cruise operator Seaborne that Hong Kong had been entirely removed from the itinerary for my cruise, which is scheduled for February 2023. Originally, the four-week Pan-Asian cruise was meant to start and end in Hong Kong. But Seaborne decided to axe Hong Kong from the route routing, which will now begin and end in Singapore. Seaborne attributed this decision to Hong Kong's restrictive COVID quarantine policies. Now that Hong Kong has moved to a zero plus three regime, has Mr. Bent seen any pickup in interest from cruise companies to re-include Hong Kong into itineraries? Or does he feel that we need to move to zero plus zero before Hong Kong is reintegrated into the global cruise routing? Actually, the government has not made any change into to policy for cruising. Um, so where the rest of the world actually cruise has already already back at 100% and um, the vast majority of places have no COVID restrictions anymore. But um, cruise lines operating in Hong Kong at the moment, you know, there would still be um, restrictions on, you know, in addition to, you know, face masks and, and inoculation and, and testing, you know, there's also, you know, dining, occupancy. Um, you know, how the crew are treated, every, everything else. So, um, no, unfortunately, a lot of cruise lines have already made their plans for the next three years out. They ripped them up during COVID, but now they generally plan three years out, and many of them have left Hong Kong off. So we need the government to remove the remaining COVID restrictions so that we can get back on the plans for three years from now. Thank you. All right, uh, let's, let's go back to the uh, Kaitak uh, isolation uh, facility um, issue. Um, Mr. Lam, um, earlier we earlier in the first part of the program, we, we talked about how well, Mr. Bent uh, suggested that the transitional housing, if it's uh, um, converted there, should, should just last until 2025. Um, in your view, what would, I mean, looking at the overall housing situation, like the number of people living in subdivided units, uh, number of people of waiting for public housing, um, how long, I mean, would be a, an appropriate time for um, for transitional housing to be located in Kai Tak if that ever happens? Well, um, it depends on the speed of um, um, the housing departments and how they can manage to, to build more and more public housing units to resolve this um, residents' need. So probably the, um, three years to six years will 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 happen and uh, I, I don't have a definite answers for that but i hope things are turning better uh, under the new leadership of the government all right and dr ma you you're um looking after two transitional housing projects will there be more yes uh, <clears throat> i just like to to add that uh, there are still a lot of uh, transition housing units in the pipeline. Uh, probably more than 10,000 uh, units are going to be completed within two years. So we, we are not really <laughs> in that desperate situation that we need to snatch any opportunity to change them into transition housing. But uh, of course, if there's a readily uh, available uh, uh, area, a visitable and also uh, a very convenient location and suitable facilities, I think it's a good thing, yeah, because it, it shortens the time people have to wait for the future transitional housing units. Yeah, but I think we still have a lot coming. Yeah. 
so Dr. Ma, uh, in your transferring housing projects and work, I presume you would have to engage and interact a fair bit with the government officials in charge of housing and also uh, related services as well. We've had a new government for three months or roughly three months by now. How do you find working with a new administration? Uh, well, actually, we, we, we just work uh, uh, with the, uh, the uh, housing uh, bureau at the moment. Uh, for the other uh, 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 partners, uh, most of them uh, actually uh, are operational on a personal level, not on policy level. Okay, so so we, we are now uh, having a very good relationship with the, with the government. Uh, and indeed, uh, the whole project has been strongly supported uh, by the government. Uh, but of course, we also need to thank the uh, the landowner uh, who actually lent the, the the piece of land to us to to start on this project. Yeah, so we are in good relationship with the government, and uh, well, I think the new government because uh, there's emphasis on a result-oriented approach. So we think that there's uh, even a more uh, well a better perspective for us. Yes. I just want to go back to an earlier point you made. You basically said uh, in terms of numbers, we don't need Kaitaka isolation facility for transitional housing. Oh, I do not mean that. Actually, I'm saying that uh, we are not as desperate as it looks, yes, because uh, there's still 10,000 or more uh, uh, units coming into well, uh, uh, completion in, in about two years' time. Yeah. So, but uh, if there's actually a very convenient site, and then it doesn't actually disrupt the uh, well, original design plan. Uh, just I was told that the piece of land actually uh, will only be start to have the definite purpose after 2025. So I think that can still be used as a transition housing unit if everything fits in. Yeah. Right, Mr. Lam, what yes. are your thoughts on that? I mean, um, we already have, a, like uh, Dr. Ma says, we already have lots of transitional housing in the pipeline. Do we really need Kaitak, the Kaitak site? But you, you, well, Dr. Ma is right, but uh, you know that uh, we only have um, 20,000 um, um, transitional housing in total yes. under uh, previous government's plan. So talking about um, more than um, um, 11,000 uh, subdivided units families, so that, that will far not enough for them so so if you compare the the, 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 the numbers you will understand the situations and that's why Kaita will be neat in the short term right and if we don't use the Kaita isolation facility as transitional housing what else can we use it for well I think that will be idle in 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 the short term because the policy is coming to be open and and COVID um, 19 won't, won't be a really, really serious um, disease to to, get, to take away people's life. Right, Mr. Bent. Um, so the policy address is coming up. Do you, I mean, I mean, what what expectations do you have? I mean, do you hope there'll be like a clearer picture as to what uh, the government will be doing with these isolation facilities? Um, all, all we hope is that the uh, government's original planning intent for the Kaitak district is honored and um, that includes a uh, a tourism node um, where the where the isolation facility is now all right and uh, and dr ma do you have any expectations for the upcoming policy address uh well of course i think housing 
the housing issue is still uh, well uh, top on, on the agenda list, and uh, we hope that uh, the uh, public housing, uh, the building speed for them uh, can be uh, expedited, and also uh, we can uh, uh, have a more detailed planning for the transitional housing uh, projects. Uh, how actually we are going to move smoothly uh, to let people moving in into the public housings without actually ending up nowhere that they have to go back to the subdivided new uh, at some point of time. All right, uh, Dr. Ma, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Ma Hock Chung, the CEO of Potloy Hospital Board Office. Many thanks also to Jeff Bent, Managing Director of Worldwide Cruise Terminals, and Francis Lam, Chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors Housing Policy Panel. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. It's now coming up to 16 minutes past nine. Let's turn to our second topic today, and it's about the discovery of a million-year-old human skull fossil in Herbei province. It's believed to be the most complete fossil of its kind found in mainland Eurasia. To uh, tell us more, we're joined on the line now by Professor Lam Wing Cheng from the Chinese University's Department of Anthropology and uh, Dr. Michael Rivera, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Department of History. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. And, uh, good thanks, morning. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, first of all, Professor Lam, how rare is this finding? Oh, um, great question. Um, so, uh, this uh, location, uh, we call it Xue Tang Liangzi in uh, Hubei, um, has been excavated uh, about like 30 years ago, and, um, uh, and the previous excavation already uh, yielded uh, two sets of early harmony skulls, um, and they are uh, already quite uh, complete. And um, according to a previous study, the date of the skulls uh, were about um, one million years ago. Um, and uh, this is not the earliest discovery um, uh, in terms of the age in China, but uh, the skull is very complete in terms of the um, uh, face, in terms of the cranial bowl, um, in terms of the base of the skull. Um, so uh, it is not the earliest, but uh, definitely it is the most complete one. Um, and um, according to the news uh, uh, information, the uh, latest discovery is even more complete than the previous excavated sample. So um, definitely a, a big discovery. So I'm sure many of our audience would want to know this, but essentially, does a skull belong to an existing settlement that's been discovered, or does it belong to a hitherto undiscovered uh, settlement? Or and what does that say about distribution of uh, the these million a year old uh, prototypical humans uh, in in ancient China? Um, you mean the uh, the skull, uh, the skull, right? Yeah, the site, the site, yeah. Yeah, so uh, like the, this one, the latest discovery, um, according to uh, the news, uh, um, archaeologists, the team, archaeological team called it the number three Yunxianmen uh, skull. Um, and that one um, is uh, definitely from archaeological context. And also the archaeological, archaeological team combined uh, various scientific methods that uh, we can use to uh, study the environment, the date, uh, and... Um, uh, other background information. So, um, uh, like, uh, it will be like uh, a, a fascinating discovery. But the previous one, uh, to be honest, uh, well, already 30 years ago. So, um, 
a lot of questions remain, such as the environment, etc. Uh, so uh, that's another reason why uh, this discovery is so fascinating. All right, and Dr. Rivera, um, so what will this million-year-old skull hopefully be able to tell us? <laughs> um, great question also. Um, so Homo sapiens in China do not come into the picture yet until later, around 100,000 years ago. So this skull being 10 times older means it's likely another species. There was one ancestor species called Homo erectus that we find in Western Asia and in Africa as well. And it's named because we believe they stood with an upright posture and had body and leg proportions that were um, efficient for walking on two legs. So um, as Professor Lam said, fossils for Homo erectus were found in China before. The Zhou Kodian Cave in northern China, for example, in 1921 was a revelation at the time because paleoanthropologists only had that as evidence for a human ancestral presence in East Asia. Um, Professor Lam also mentioned that there were other finds in Yunnan and in Shanxi province. These also date to quite ancient times, but the find announced this week is a really exciting one because we're finding another piece to fit in the human evolutionary puzzle. Would the skull be able to, uh, Dr. Rivera, uh, offer us any information about the structure of the societies and communities, or is it more an individual um individual-based uh, evidence and also information that we can collect from it? I think that there are some biological questions and some behavioral questions we can answer. So in terms of biology, it seems that we have many parts of the skull available for study. So like the frontal bone, which is your forehead and your eyebrow ridge, the eye sockets, um, and also some bones that make up the left side of the head. So if you look at the upper part of the skull and you study that in comparison to the lower half of the skull, we can find out more about how our bones have changed in shape to accommodate bigger brains. Because if you think about it, a big brain is very heavy, which is why monkey and, and other ape skulls sort of stretch backwards. But we in the hominin lineage reconfigured that so that our brain's weight will sit centered and on top of the neck, and that will shift your face downwards and backwards. Um, your upper skull goes forward and upwards. At least that's what we observe in African and Western Asian homo species. So it'll be very interesting to see what's happening here in the Eastern Asian context. In terms of behavior, um, if, they're un uh, if they're able to uncover some teeth and more about the jaw morphology, we can learn about diet. The archaeologists working in Hubei mentioned that they uncovered the bones of many large animals like elephants and horses and big uh, carnivorous cat species and also the stone tools associated with hunting. So we could potentially see if that type of diet affected the condition of their teeth and bones, but also understand a bit about um, the way that they're interacting with the environment. Right. And Professor Lam, have there been any other fossil findings on the mainland that's been uh, this significant before? Um, so I think um, in terms of the age, in terms of um, the um, uh, completeness of the skull, I think this one definitely um, is the most important one. And um, another significant issue is that um, uh, this um, archaic uh, hominid skull um, represents changes um, uh, moving towards more advanced hominids. Um, so definitely according to the um, uh, physical anthropological study, uh, this skull belongs to Homo erectus, but um, Previous study already showed that uh, on number two skull that was excavated about like 30 years ago, uh, number two skull already um, present uh, some modern 
uh, features that uh, theoretically appeared on uh, later period homilies. So, um, I mean, in terms of the age and in terms of the significance for understanding the evolution of um, uh, modern human beings uh, in East Asia, this one definitely is probably the most important one. And what information and did, did we manage to get from the skull you're talking about that was uh, discovered 30 years ago? So, uh, yeah, 30 years ago, uh, the same location uh, uh, excavation uh, already yielded two uh, skulls. And um, uh, one of them uh, is also very complete. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, that one was uh, quite deformed by the pressure um, uh, because it is uh, uh, deposited uh, under a very thick layer. Uh, but uh, the latest discovery, number three, uh, is uh, not only very complete, but uh, is uh, not that deformed. So um, because of the completeness of the skull, um, this one uh, will provide more information for us to uh, look at changes associated with human evolution. Now, Dr. Rivera, just out of curiosity, do you foresee these increasing frequency of discoveries that we're, we're having here as something that would occur? So are we going to see more frequent discoveries and breakthroughs to a similar nature and of a similar kind uh, as a result of technological and technique advances? Or do you see this as merely uh, in, an incidental occurrence, so to speak? <laughs> it's always an accident. It's always random. But um, I do think that the rate of, of discovery is improving, um, exactly as you say, because we have um, more innovative uh, scanning technologies and um, drone uh, technology that we use to actually understand what's under the ground before even digging under it so that we save a lot of resources and time and effort um, before we, we sort of commit to a big excavation project. And so I do foresee that there will be more exciting discoveries. I also think that it's important to um, recognize that in Asia, the environment is very different from other places, maybe perhaps like North America or in Europe, um, because we have a very particular um, set of environments. And um, across China and across East Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, we have different conditions. Different environmental conditions can mean that preservation can vary. Um, any condition that's too wet, too dry, too hot, too cold, the soil being too acidic can all cause um, damage or disintegration. And so um, that is also something to keep in mind. But, you know, a vast majority of the world, 99.9% .9 of it, we haven't dug yet. And so I, I do foresee that there probably are a lot more hominin discoveries to come. Right. And Dr. Rivera, now that the uh, latest skull has been found, uh, what usually happens next? I mean, will they uh, have to confirm the age of the skull or, or do some sort of tests? Yes. So uh, for ancient fossils, we do try to run uh, various um, dating techniques. They might be sent to multiple labs so that you can sort of verify independently and really confirm a date range uh, based on multiple techniques and also multiple researchers um, going at the problem um, going at the same problem from different angles. And then after the date, uh, we would then hope uh, to kind of do studies that fit that in the overall context of human evolution in this part of the world. And then, of course, hopefully after that, um, we will disseminate that in scientific journal articles, but also public talks, um, maybe display a 3D model of that skull in museums. Um, public outreach is also a very important final step in everything that we do. Now, on the note of public uh, outreach, actually, uh, Professor Lam, just want to 
bring you in here. What do you think are important steps that the Hong Kong government should undertake to promote public outreach and in, encourage people to dig deeper into uh, the historical findings here? Well, so first of all, um, public archaeology uh, is uh, quite essential for um, in the educational component because it can help us understand the past and also can help us uh, make a better uh, decision in terms of the uh, balancing of the development and cultural heritage conservation. Um, so um, the more uh, the better understanding of the past and uh, the more understanding of the significance of the archaeological discoveries will definitely benefit to uh, uh, developing a better plan in the future. And Dr. Rivera? Uh, yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I also think that um, there, there aren't a lot of archaeologists here in Hong Kong, but there are, there, there are uh, several dozen of us at least trying to do um, some of this outreach. And I think uh, something that we all keep in mind is also when we plan excavations, we can hopefully work with government offices and other stakeholders to invite members of the community to come take part or um, to share in the results of what we find. Because I think that's a very uh, engaging and exciting way to bring archaeology out to members of the public. So hopefully we always have that in mind, working together with museums, um, different government officials, and also uh, members of the public, especially young people and students. I think it's so important to bring them out to get some real hands-on experience or exposure to paleoanthropology and archaeology. Do you think there's a lot of interest in Hong Kong among young people in this area? I think that everybody um, asks themselves, where do we come from or what makes us human? Um, I always think about, you know, members of my family, like my mother is a teacher. Um, I think uh, people who do business, uh, they have other things that they do in society. And then every time I sit down at dinner with them, then we start to chat and then, we, and then they start to ask me, you know, wh when were the first people ever in Hong Kong? Or why is it that we all come in different shapes and sizes and skin colors? And I'm able to tell them this human evolutionary story, and that's the purpose that we serve. We are here to kind of get into that history and give answers to questions that people don't even realize that they've always wanted to know the answer to. So when did the first humans first grace Hong Kong, actually? Okay, that's a great question. Um, we do find evidence of ancient humans living in uh, coastal environments and on islands, especially around Lantau Island and on Lama Island. Um, we actually find them to be several thousands of years old, like about 6,000, 7,000 years ago is when we have real solid evidence of a human presence here, um, mainly like fisher, fisher hunter-gatherers, um, and then they were slowly transitioning into farming as well. All right, uh, Dr. Rivera, this all sounds uh, very fascinating, but unfortunately we're out of time. And many thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Michael Rivera, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Department of History. Many thanks also to Professor Lan Wing Cheng from the Chinese University's Department of Anthropology. And of course, uh, many thanks to all of you who shared your views with us today. And of course, to our guest presenter, Brian Wong and producer Yuki. Now, here's the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms in the morning. Sunny intervals during the day with highs of around 31 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies, occasionally strong offshore and on high ground to start with. And uh, right now it's 27 degrees, relative humidity 90%. Since influenza activity has been low in recent years, immunity against the flu virus could be reduced. 
With more frequent travel and social interactions, the risk of contracting flu could increase greatly. Getting the flu jab can boost immunity against the flu virus and reduce the risks of severe complications and death. Don't drop your guard against